0: Welcome to Worlds of Tomorrow, an occasional feature we'll be running, looking at some of the best in science fiction cinema, old and new. From acknowledged classics to forgotten gems to surprisingly effective new movies, we'll be covering everything. Some of them you'll have seen, some you won't, some you're going to agree with me on, and some you'll wonder what I was drinking when I watched them, but that's half the fun. Spoilers, of course, abound, so if you haven't seen the movie and want to be surprised, go rent it now, we'll be here when you get back. Otherwise, set course for fun. This time, we're looking at Armageddon. Certain films have become a watchword over the years for success, excess, or outright failure. Mention Ishtar, or even better, Wikipedia it, and you'll see people cringe. Mention The Long Kiss Goodnight to the right person, you'll be treated to a detailed treatise about how IT and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang are two of the best action movies of the last 20 years and Shane Black is an unrecognised genius. That happens if you mention them to me, by the way. And mention Armageddon to pretty much everyone but me, and you'll get laughed at. Armageddon is big and stupid and excessive, and it features more Aerosmith per square inch than any film should ever. Seriously, there should be a UN resolution about it. It's tub-thumping, and it's chest-beating, and Bruce Willis famously got in a huff about it at Cannes. What on earth a film like Armageddon was doing at Cannes is, of course, a different matter. Even worse... It's a Michael Bay film, a man whose name is spoken by many with such loathing, it actually appears in italics, whether or not it's written in them. It's a joke. It's an epic, critical disaster so reviled that NASA actually use it as a means of assessing the scientific knowledge of its management staff. They have a competition for new members of management to see how many scientific errors they can spot in the film. Seriously. And here's the thing. Every single one of those criticisms is right. Every single one of them is justified. Every problem is there on the screen, written in immense letters that Steve Buscemi, Ben Affleck, Michael Clark Duncan and Peter Stormare take turns shouting at. But there's more to it. Armageddon, to my mind, is in some ways both a much simpler and much, much smarter film than it's ever really been given credit for. Not because of the ridiculous science present in the film, or the accurate science almost completely absent from it, but for one simple reason drawn from recent history. Apollo 13 On April 14th, 1970, one of the oxygen tanks in the Apollo 14 spacecraft ruptured, and the resulting explosion crippled the ship. To make matters worse, Apollo 13 could only return to Earth by going around the moon first, and after a torturous journey, the crew finally arrived home safe and sound. The story of the mission makes for fascinating reading or viewing in its own right, but the subject that emerges from it is most interesting is the flight crew and ground staff's refusal to back down from insurmountable problems up to and including the amount of time the air in the ship would be breathable, a problem solved, by the way, by building CO2 scrubbers from exactly what was available to the astronauts. No one gave up, everyone kept trying, and the end result is regarded not only as one of NASA's finest hours, but is also regularly taught as an example of how to manage people and problems successfully. Enter Armageddon, stage left, in the middle of a screeching aerosmith guitar solo. Armageddon's central problem is approached in exactly the same way as that of Apollo 13. Something impossible to survive is going to happen. Let's survive it. From the very first moment you see Billy Bob Thornton as Truman, the NASA administrator, to the closing escape from the asteroid, this is a film defined by two factors. Total human ingenuity and the belief that anything that can go wrong is going to. There's a point, at roughly two hours in, where Steve Bashemi, as rock the team geologist, loses it. Framed by an asteroid designed to basically look like death if death was angry and a rock the size of Texas, the Earth appears impossibly beautiful, fragile, and far, far too close. Buscemi strides into shot and with total joviality, the sort born from just the complete loss of all rational thought, yells, Guys, it's time to embrace the horror! And no one does. By this stage, the drilling team are cut in half. They've had to persuade the government to not detonate a nuclear weapon in their faces early. There's been a standoff at gunpoint. Several of them are dead. The asteroid is coming, around, coming apart around them. This is a disaster movie with a capital D, and yet, in the midst of it, no one gives up. No one. Truman and his team are still working to keep in touch Harry and what's left of his team Are still working to get the nuclear shaft completed And with no time left No one's going anywhere Everyone From the ground staff to the oil rig workers Is still working, still finding ways around problems Still intent on getting the problem solved first And their safety second And even then their bad luck isn't finished And even then They still keep going from CO2 scrubbers made of mission binders to using dodgy Hollywood physics to jump across a canyon. It's a stretch, but it's not a big one. The other big factor to draw on, and it's certainly one that Armageddon enjoys, is the sheer romance of spaceflight. There is a moment which, this being a Michael Bay film, is handled with no subtlety whatsoever, which features a montage of children running down the street, naturally in slow motion, playing with boxcars made to look like space shuttles. What works better, and communicates the same point, is the moment where, after bullying the rig workers through training, Harry and Truman have a moment alone, and for the first time, they're both worried. Neither admits it, but in a short scene, two very competent, very confident men let their guards slip, just a little. Then they get up and go back to work. It's the quiet heroism of the everyman, the moment where someone with clay feet stands up and says, I'll do that. It is, in short, exactly the same moment as Ken Mattingly making contact with Apollo 13, the flight crew of 13 taking their surgical sensors off in rebellion, Jim Lovell keeping his crew happy, because if they're happy, they're focused, and if they're focused, they'll live. It's Gene Kranz and his pitbull-like refusal to lose three men. It's a room full of engineers in short-sleeved shirts pulling a miracle out of thin air. It's someone staring an impossible job in the face and saying, it's all right, I can do this. It's that quiet heroism, that evocation of the Apollo 13 spirit that makes Armageddon for me. Yes, it's huge and brash and stupid, and yes, no one, not even Peter Stormare himself, seems entirely clear on what nationality his character's actually supposed to be, or, whilst we're on the subject, why there's a spare spacesuit with his name on it on the shuttle he happens to be evacuated to. It's a massive sprawling, self-indulgent film that wastes Liv Tyler, laughs at any concept of physics and has moments where the patriotic drama isn't so much beaten as mulched. But despite all that, despite the legions, the armies of flaws, there is something smart and affecting and universal at its core. And that, not even Aerosmith can drown out.